Well, hello and good evening, listeners, and some of you who are viewers, and welcome to the Water Zone Radio Show, where tonight and every week we are live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA 1050 AM, Talk 102.3 FM, and Express 106.5 FM, located right here in beautiful Southern Southern California. And now, for those of you who don't know, simultaneously broadcasting on First Up Radio out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So, courtesy of firstupradio.com, please visit their website. All right, thanks for talking to us this evening and listening to us and tuning into the Water Zone Radio Show. I'm your host, Chris Davey. Rob Starr, the other co-host, is on travel status today, but I'm very happy to announce that we have our ag co-host, Ingi Bisconer, and Chris Austin on the line for... What tonight is going to be a very interesting conversation with a little clandestine twist. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Ingi Biscona, take it away. Thank you so much, Chris. And uh, um, we're always honored to have um, Chris Austin on the line with us as well from Maven's Notebook. Say hello, Chris. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, I know that you have another water event to cover here for a couple of minutes, so I'll let you go and introduce <laughs> our guest tonight. <laughs> You know, I, I feel so honored. I'm here um, with kind of the two first ladies of California Water uh, tonight, Maven's Notebook, and uh, who we all know here on the Water Zone because she often opens the show with California's water news from from uh, from the week. Uh, tonight, she's my co-host um, to um, help me interview a most interesting person um, who blogs um, on the internet. Um, and, has a blog and, called and let me just interject that uh, she is the most popular uh, blogger that I cover on, you know, that I include on Maven's Notebook, hands down. When she there writes, you go. people I, people listen. I know. everybody. Hey, I'm a water geek. We're all water geeks here. And everybody that I know reads on the public record, and I think they're all going to be jealous that we, we have her on the show tonight. So, um <laughs> Uh, the, the, we're, we're calling the show tonight Fascination with California Water because we are all really fascinated with it. Most of us are making our living with it. I'd like to say that um, on the public record, uh, what we know about her um, is that she loves water so much that she writes about it on her own time after her day job is over. I believe that's correct. So uh, welcome to the show on the public record. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're we're very pleased to have you, uh, and if you don't mind, um, I will refer to you as OTPR from uh, here on out. And uh, as by way of introduction, I mean I I don't know you, but um, I I know about you, and from what you've written on your own um, website, you are a self-described low-level civil servant who basically reads reports for a living, but writes a blog called On the Public Record about all sorts of uh, California water issues. Um, you've said that you don't really represent your employer on this blog. Um, in fact, not one little tiny bit. <laughs> no, I, I certainly do not. My, you do my not? Employer okay. is not uh, aware. Yeah, so um, uh, that gives us another clue if somebody's trying to figure this out. But I'm not. I'm just happy to have you on. Um, and you, you only comment about what is in the public record in you know reports and presentations and the news. We all are very grateful to Chris Austin of, Ma of Maven's Notebook for her ceaseless work in sorting and presenting information to us who are fascinated by California water. Um, 
But you, on the other hand, are really using that information sometimes in your own to comment on um, these, um, this water information. And it seems like, you know, the perennial themes that you cover are agriculture and water use in California and adjusting to increasing scarcity, you know, especially in the context of climate change, uh, deconstructing rhetoric and adding context, talking about our governance, and, of course, reviewing reports. So, um, so welcome, OTPR. And as we get started, please tell us as much or as little additional information about yourself as you'd like. You know, maybe how you got into the water space or, in particular, why, why you're so fascinated with California water. You know, I can guess that maybe you have a farm background, but who knows? Maybe you're, maybe you're a New York City transplant. So do, do tell what you, what you are willing to. Neither of those, actually. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm a native Californian. I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. I, um, I've just always been interested. My dad had one of the great big blue California water atlases, and I remember leafing through that as a kid. Um, I did my History Day LA project for eighth grade on the Owens Valley in Los Angeles. Oh, and my God. You are a water geek. You are a water geek. Eighth grade. From the get-go, Yeah. Yeah, um, I did yeah, my third grade right. science project on how much water radishes need. I, <laughs> that's and I did not win that science fair. Came in second. <gasps> <laughs> but it's, it's been all along. I did quite a bit of formal education, and all of it was focused on some facet of water. All right. I ended up, well, um, I've worked for a couple of summers on mobile labs, um, okay. evaluating irrigation efficiencies. So I... You have grounding that way, but I am not myself a farmer. Yeah. Well, mobile lab work, um, you are definitely um, uh, well-versed uh, well and well-prepared to, to comment on uh, uh, California agricultural water use then. So, all right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just amazed that your blog runs all the way back to post every month, almost every month, in every year since 2008, you know, with only a few missing months. So you've been at this for a while, and I, I'm just curious, what, what makes your blog different, and what drives you to keep up this pace? Um, well, there have, been, there have been times when I haven't written in the blog, um, but mostly I write in the blog because it's a place to put my thoughts. I think a lot about water. I read a lot of reports. And it turns out that my friends and loved ones don't actually want to talk about details in a report I read all day. <laughs> that if I bring it up again, they listen to me politely and their eyes kind of glaze. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so the blog has always primarily been for me to get my thoughts out of my head. I yeah. can put it to there and then I can lay the issue to rest and stop thinking about it until I, write, until I read something else that hooks me. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we are certainly appreciative, uh, we in the, uh, the California water world, because you really tackle some very, not only controversial, but very complicated topics that, you know, have heated debate going on with all the professionals that are dealing with it. But, you know, at the end of the day, water, water is essential to everything that we do in California. It, without it, we don't, we don't have civilized life, we don't have lifestyle, we don't have you know, a healthy environment. We don't have 
anything. So it is so important. So it is so amazing that so many of those around us, like you said, your loved ones, and I have had that same issue, that they don't really, they're not really interested in it. So, um, well, I, I, I think that's fair, though. I mean, I know, I know lots of people who are into air quality and who are into transportation and who have, you, you know, topics in health or health care, and they have topics and loves of their own. Yes. Um, and mine happens yeah. to be water. Yours happens to be water. All right. Well, you're in good company on this show. And, right. and <laughs> I'm glad show. of it. <laughs> That's great. So one of the controversial topics in the news today is how many acres of irrigated ag can the state support, you know, going forward? You know, and, and we've had our history and we didn't have that many people and now we have more people and we have more irrigated ag, which is very strong and very essential. So I'm wondering from your from your standpoint and, you know, your educated opinion, how many acres of irrigated farmland do you think the state can support, both in wet years or in drought? And also how many people you think the state can viably support, you know, given that we're pushing almost forty million now? Well to me that's an interesting question. Um, right now, we irrigate about 9 million acres. And the way I think of that question is how much of that 9 million irrigated acres is doing something important, right? So of the 9 million irrigated acres, about 1.5 million are in tree nuts. And those bring in a good profit. They make a lot of money for the people who grow them. But the question I've raised on my blog is, is that an important thing for us to be doing with our land? Right? Mm-hmm. I, I like tree nuts. I eat them myself. Um, mm-hmm. They're a very pleasant snack, but they're not more important than a pleasant snack. So if I have to choose between having a thriving San Joaquin River or growing tree nuts for a snack, where do I put where do I put that balance? What's important to me? And then there's another almost a million acres in wine grapes. Is wine something that's really important to us culturally? Is that something that is a good use for our rivers? Um, There's more than a million acres of of, um, field crops for animal use, for animal food. And that's what keeps milk and dairy cheap for people, meat and dairy cheap for people to eat. But is having cheap meat a good use for a million acres? So of the 9 million acres we started with, I've listed at least 3.5 million that aren't necessarily providing good value. I think a lot of people would would debate me on the wine. Um, I myself am not a wine, wine drinker, but I know that it's really crucial to a lot of people. And so when people say, well, the San Joaquin Valley needs to be wall-to-wall irrigated, it's, it's um, crucial that we do these things. I'm like, well, we're not doing very important things with it now. Why, why does all of that have to keep existing? Um, I do think and have said as much I expect statewide about 3 million acres to go out of production. The politically um, feasible, polite thing that people admit to is about 50,000 or 500,000 acres going out of production. I think that's low. I think that's an optimistic um, estimate. 
most credible people will say a million acres. Sometimes they'll say one to two million acres. I say three. I've never seen a climate change forecast that has been strong enough or bad enough or dangerous enough. Every climate change forecast I ever see is an underestimation. I think the effects of climate change will hit us soon and hard. And I think the results of that will be we'll, we'll lose about 3 million irrigated acres. I also think that's okay. Um, I think that California can grow plenty of table crops for a balanced diet for people and humans to eat directly. I think that's not a problem for California. I think two, two or three million acres should be farmed. I think it should be protected. I think the state should put more resources into supporting two or three million acres of irrigated ag. I think another maybe couple million acres of irrigated ag should exist um, that's intermittently farmed in wet years. But um, I don't think all nine million acres, irrigated acres, will persist as they are. And I think that's fine. I think there's plenty of slack that for things that are not that important. Okay, so we're starting off with 9 million acres, and you're mm -hmm. thinking that, in your opinion, based on what you've read and uh, the reports and so forth, 3 million should probably go out and that we should maintain... Well, I think they will go out of production. You think, I mean, what, yeah, I've heard... Or not. I, I agree with your assessment, 500,000 um, to a million to 1.2, 1 to 2 million. They, those are all figures that we've heard in... Um, you know, from universities and from think tanks, um, they all vary about how many acres will probably go out of production. And I guess my thinking has always been that the lower value field crops would probably move out and that we would retain the higher value fruit, nut, and vegetable crops. Would you agree with that? Or um, I think that's highly likely. Yes, I think yeah. that nut crops have made incredible fortunes in the San Joaquin Valley, and with that wealth, the growers will probably protect what they're doing. Um, yeah. So yeah. That would be yeah. my estimation. Yeah, I, I would think that, um, yeah, the tree, the tree, you know, fruit, nut, vegetable, all those types of crops, where you can't really grow them out in the Midwest, whereas you can grow, you know, maybe the silage corn or the alfalfa, although the alfalfa has another element to it. It's really a, a soil, you know, builder and then rice, of course, uh, supports some wildlife. So, you know, nothing is simple. It's not a matter of um, just, um, hey, we'll eliminate this and save some water for people. Uh, there's also the wildlife um, to consider as well. Well, how many, how many people do you think ultimately the state should support? How many people should it support? Well, how well many I mean, people we're, I mean what, what population is appropriate for California in the long run? Well, again, that's that same balance. It's a question of population at what lifestyle. Right. Yeah, okay. At a lifestyle where everyone does outdoor landscaping, well, that's a pretty high water demand. At a yeah. lifestyle where everyone eats meat, cheap meat frequently, that's also a high water demand. Um, a lifestyle where people live um, in cities and eat mostly plant diets, there's a lot more. Yeah. I also think, yeah. or I've been told, um, this isn't my area of expertise, that with the new lead building standards, that indoor water use is just dropping and dropping and dropping. And I think people are still fairly comfortable with their, with their standard of living. I think that we have no idea 
how little water people can comfortably live on for household use. I think it'll go down for a long time to come. Yeah, I think our goal for the state is something like 55 gallons per person per day, and that includes indoor and right. outdoor water use. And oh, I thought sure that was that just indoor. Uh, I, I don't know. Just indoor, I believe. Yeah. That, that's my Chris understanding. Miss Chris, you're back yeah. from your other water event? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Love the awesome. way you put that. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was both. Uh, Chris Austin, you believe it's just indoor? Yeah, it's just indoor, and that's what they've uh, that's what they put in this new water conservation legislation. Um, and there are those that say we could do a lot better than that. Um, you know, depending on you know efficient use of water indoors, but fifty five is what they're looking for. And then these new water conservation regulations they uh, they separate indoor and outdoor use. And the plan is that they're going to, uh, I believe the Department of Water Resources is already lined up and is already doing um, satellite assessments in these water districts of, you know, all the properties and what's hardscape and what, uh, what requires irrigation. And, and they're going to come up with a water budget for every lot that's individualized to your lot. So, oh, wow. you know, and, and then they're going to assign a value to that, and the goal is going to be, you know, that you got to live within that. But, but in the interesting way that things work in this world of utilities, um, your water district has to encourage you to live within those means because I'm not sure how much they can really enforce other than charge you a whole lot of money. Yeah, um, yeah. And but, in, uh, in, know, in Southern California, there are those that will pay whatever to do whatever they want, and it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> but at least there's a metric where people can choose to blow their wad of water on, hey, if they just want a big fountain, that's fine. If they want a, you know, a lawn, that's fine. If they want Euroscape with some you know, a water feature, that's fine. I think that's better than somebody dictating exactly what you're going to do. Let's Tell me how much my budget is, and I'll, I'll figure out what I want to do with it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And grass in some places is not a bad, is not a bad thing. We have yeah. a small patch of grass out in our backyard, but we have kids and we have dogs. Yeah, and that's so, an appropriate use know. for it. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, we in the manufacturing world are trying to provide the best equipment, you know, both for the landscape and for the farms to be the most efficient as possible. On the ag side, you know, the industry has provided state-of-the-art drip systems that help us, you know, get the most crop per drop, you know, water use efficiency on all these crops that uh, OTR just just mentioned. But but the fact is that the state still has 4 million acres of, of gravity-irrigated farms, which we could be, we always could be doing a better job, I guess. Hey, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I'm going to come in with my unpopular defense of crafty irrigated farms. Okay, okay, good. I measured some fields that did a really nice job. They had very high distribution uniformity on sure. um, on throws. Gravity irrigation has a place, and it is um, it can be well done with a lot of management. I am actually actually not a person who thinks we should only go to pressurized systems. I think that. Um, all irrigation systems can be can be managed well, and so I don't I don't actually I, say that 
there should necessarily be conversion out of them. And not all crops are appropriate for certain types of irrigation, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's really no other choice for rice right now, and that's great because it supports bird life. So, so let me go back and say that I'm not suggesting that we convert 4 million um, flood irrigated acres or whatever it is now. Maybe it's only three um, to uh, any sort of pressurized. I, I think some of those acres definitely warrant the conversion. The last time I did um, an analysis of that, I thought there was about a million acres okay. that certainly warranted conversion to something better. But the other one is, like you say, if it's a short run or if there's, if we can uh, replenish the groundwater, um, uh, if it supports wildlife, or if it's just efficient, you know, efficient enough for, you know, the economies don't warrant conversion to something more expensive or, or you know, energy um, uh, footprint we also need to consider. I, I totally agree with you, OTPR. I, I would not Sounds agree. Good. So, um, you know, one of your recent blogs is like five parts, and it's on this topic of the San Joaquin Valley water blueprint. It looked really important, so I read the whole thing, and it's very, uh, very interesting. So tell us a little bit about that, and um, bottom line, where you, where you think it's, it's going. And, you know, they're, I think they're trying to say that this is part of a resilient, um, this blueprint is part of California's future resiliency plan. So tell us what you think of that. Governor Newsom and the Natural Resources Agency have announced they've um, created an executive order that they are going to create a resilience portfolio. They are taking suggestions from everyone right now. Over the summer, they're going to release it in October. Um, and so everyone is scrambling because this is going to be the, the administration's signature effort and it'll probably set their plan for the next seven years, and everyone wants their own suggestions to be in the resilience portfolio. Sure. Um, so um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, on Maiden's Notebook, she pointed us to a resource that I had never seen before, and I'm, I'm horrified that I haven't seen it before. I've needed it for years. There is a fellow, Don Wright, and he goes to every big ag water meeting in the Valley, and he writes up what happens at this meeting. And so Don is great. <laughs> oh, man, that is the window I have always needed. I could not be happier for it. And so he this, really is captured the, this is the Water Rights um, mm -hmm. website, Don Wright? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I am completely delighted, and I was naturally reading through the year of archives because <laughs> who wouldn't read a year's worth of back meetings in the San Joaquin Valley. And I noticed an increasing number of references to the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint, which I had never heard of before. Um, so then I started digging into the minutes of the um, Exchange Water Contractors meetings and the Friant Water Users Authority meetings and found enough information to understand what the blueprint is. And what the blueprint looks like to me is um, basically they've cobbled together every project that they've ever wanted, um, the Raising Shasta, Temperance Flat Dams, a Mid-Valley Canal, a great deal of water recharge um, for um, depleted aquifers, which I do support. And um, they've 
put them all together in a slide of, oh, of the peripheral canal. Uh, they put them all together in a slide that lists them all, and they are trying to get back 3 million acre feet of water to backfill the water that Sigma will require them to stop pumping. Okay, from all these water. Okay, so hold that thought. Um, yes. That is what the water plan or the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint is. And we're going to take a station break. And when we come back, um, we're going to dive into what to think about it. All right. Well, welcome back to The Water Zone. This is Ingie Bisconner along with co-host Chris Davey and Chris Austin. We're, we're having a nice visit with On the Public Record. And we were just discussing the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint. And... Um, OTPR, if you'd like to uh, continue your discussion, uh, I think you had just described what the blueprint was, uh, a whole bunch of projects. Yes, although like. that, that was my description and understanding, and to be fair, um, okay. <laughs> you should ask the Brown Water Authority who's proposing this, what it is, I'm sure could give you a, a um, their version of what this project is. Um, yes, so I understand the the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint to be the proposal that the San Joaquin Valley Water users are going to make to the Newsom administration to include as their as as a contribution to the resilience portfolio to guide them for the next seven years of their of their tenure. I assume seven years, the, the remainder of the Newsom administration. Yeah. So it doesn't. Um, yeah. From, from your viewpoint, it doesn't make sense, especially given what you just. Uh, shared with us about how many acres well, the state can support, and this is basically just saying, no, we need to build more projects so that we can maintain the acres. Is that kind of um, what It what is, and, and what you see happening is that from the start of water development, um, we naturally, as, as engineers and people in society, we went to the good water sources first. Right? We went to high, narrow valleys that were easy to dam and had really great water. And then we went to medium valleys that were kind of easy to dam and had really great water. And what we've done is we've used up all of the good sources of water. And so what you're going to see, and this is everywhere um, for the remainder of our lives, is us just going to the next possible source. And these sources get less easy to build, um, they, they need collecting. I mean, cities are looking for stormwater that they used to not even want, but now they're trying to pull it back together and put it in a place. They're looking to clean up their wastewater. That used to be water they didn't value, but now they're looking to clean it and reuse it. And the same thing's happening for ag. The projects in the, center, in the, in the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint are all really marginal projects. <laughs> projects. If they were good, we would have built them, right? Temperance Flat fails every cost-benefit analysis it ever goes through. And that's why they don't build it themselves. That's why they want the taxpayers to pay for it. So the taxpayers pay for the project, and they get the water from it. And the same is true of raising Shasta. The same is true of um, the Mid-Valley Canal. Probably didn't pencil out. These projects are just going for the next possible source of water. Um, and... Facing what we are facing with climate change 
less water is going to fall on the state. It's going to be less catchable. A lot of marginal sources are going to dry up, and we're going to spend more and more money chasing them. And I think eventually that will have to come to an end, and what we're finally going to do is contract and retreat. We just aren't going to be able to farm 9 million acres and spending a lot of money trying to go get the next chunk of water to hold on to that acreage for a little bit longer. I think it's just a very expensive folly. And I worry that the Newsom administration um, haven't been in the field long enough to see that. I think they're fairly new to water. So Yeah, well, I, I can just imagine how politically tough it would be to acknowledge that and act upon it, but I think that's the conundrum we're all living within today, is that we we know that we've kind of overstepped our boundaries as humans on the planet, things are happening, um, we might need to make some changes, um, but people aren't really changing quickly enough, we don't want to give up our lifestyles, um, certainly those uh, in power who are making money from these operations certainly aren't going to give them up easily. So how, no. how do we how do we get there? I know that you have another set of blogs that call the plans are so vague as they're worthless and they're safe and medium and controversial items on the list of what we can do. What what do you think we should do? You know, given you know the level of knowledge you have on all these topics, um, what is mm-hmm. the right thing for the Newsom administration to do? Oh, well, that's a hard question. <laughs> the right thing for them to do is to understand that things are going to change radically and to choose the change they want to see and to aggressively make that happen. Um, there, if I that is a just... terrible conversation for a political person to have with the public. Um, no. So the other alternative is that they'll do weasel half measures for another few years and then after a huge emergency or a collapse, um, we'll scrape together what's left afterwards. No, and that's well, not let, a good let me scenario. just jump in here yeah, and, please do. and ask you this, OTPR. Um, you know, when people burst onto the water scene or they first get interested in water issues, I think, and and I speak from myself, you know, you come in and you're like, you know, can't we all get along here? There must be a win-win solution for everybody. <laughs> you know, if we just all listen to each other and hold hands and sing kumbaya, we're going to figure this stuff out. And I think, you know, I mean, I remember Jay Ziegler saying that he thought about, you know, water rights and that we should really, you know, change water rights. And it took him many years to understand that that wasn't going to happen. And so I wonder if Newsom isn't coming in here with this naivety that we all had at the beginning that, you know, there's a win-win solution, and we just all need to listen to each other. Because in some places, there are win-win solutions. I think, you know, salmon and the floodplain reactivation is very promising work. But when you look at the delta, either you build a tunnel or you don't build a tunnel, there's not a 
a negotiation position to be had. And so I think, you know, I, I just wonder, is he trying to think that, like a lot of people do, that we can all solve all the problems and, and that maybe this water resilience portfolio is just trying to take everybody's ideas from everywhere and, you know, think we can all come to this great, happy, you know, rainbow with unicorns spurting water out of their horns and, and all that. What do you think? My take on it is that there are a couple different temperaments and approaches that I see in the field of, of water planning. And there's one there's one concept of planning that says, well, let's look where we want to get and let's look where we are now and we'll, and we'll see all the things we have to do backward from the future and then we'll start doing those things, right? If we want to have rivers in the future, then we start setting in stream flows now. If we want to, um, if, if we want to have 6 million irrigated acres um, of of strong farming community, then we start working on that and we start taking um, 3 million irrigated acres out of production. And so I see that temperament, right? They have mm -hmm. a place they are, a place they want to go, and then they figure out the intermediate steps. And I see another temperament, and it seems to be we'll gather people now and do the low-hanging fruit. Progress is progress. We can move forward here. Why jump in to the most contentious issues that we have when before that I can work on um, recharge on irrigated land? That's something everyone agrees on. That's relatively easy. We can start pursuing the easy pieces chunk by chunk. We don't have to think so hard about where we want to go. We can just keep doing the next most doable thing and put off talk about later conflicting issues or high-conflict issues. And I think that people who feel that genuinely feel that. They, um, and I think that there is a possibility that those people might be right. That might be the way that moves us as far along as anything does. I myself like the option where we go straight to taking each next step. But if that locks us in conflict on step one, then... Um, maybe the people who are just doing the next little bite, the next little nipple, the next one, the next one, the low-conflict ones all around. We'll just keep doing those. Maybe their, their approach would get us further. Well, it's probably better than not doing anything at all or, God forbid, going backwards. The, yes, those things are better. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe um, with the resilience portfolio, the Newsom administration is working on that type of approach and maybe that approach is right, but I fear that it isn't, and the cost to us all of not directly facing high-conflict areas is going to be very acute. And one of the most high-conflict areas is Delta Conveyance. Mm -hmm. So we build two tunnels, one tunnel, none tunnel, um, the debate goes on, I guess, although the Newsom administration has... Uh, has said that they want to go with a one-tunnel approach. So what, I mean, what's your take on Delta Conveyance? 
Uh, the, I know it's a hard right. Question. I know, right? I have, um, I have, we have to talk about it. <laughs> I thought Brown sacrificed too much to try to get two tunnels done. My take on one tunnel is that's fine. My preference for the state water project would be that it continues supporting the municipal water supplies that it does. I can't see any um, future that that doesn't um, supply water to the big Southern California cities. Um, and, also and I think the Bay one area. tunnel is probably necessary for that, and the Bay Area as well, you're right. And one tunnel is necessary for that. But since I want Westside agriculture to go out of production anyway, I, um, I don't think the State Water Project should be sized to include ag exports. Interesting. You know, apparently they're trying to negotiate all these. Uh, they're trying to. It's interesting. I covered uh, a meeting at Santa Clara Valley Water District. They're an interesting district because they, they're one of the few ones that have state water project and Central Valley project water, um, too. And now that the state is looking at a state-only project, they're looking to figure out how they can wheel their Central Valley project water through the system. And their staff admirably came up with a number considering that we have no size on this project, but they're trying to negotiate this uh, contract amended, amendment for the state water project contractors with no size. And everyone is expected to kind of put in how much they're going to buy into this project that is of no size. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's really putting the cart before the horse. Um, so I guess we'll see where, where all that goes. Um, yeah, I think you know more about it than I do. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in Yeah, the I mean, it's real, it's, we're all kind of waiting to see what happens with, uh, with these contract amendments and also uh, with these biological opinions. Um, right, you know, which is the big question that we're all waiting for, and a bunch of big stories that came out that you know the Trump administration didn't like the numbers that you know that they were getting, so they brought in new scientists. And um, I don't know. Well, that's, it's that's pretty familiar. Really the Bush administration, the Bush administration did that too. Do you have any thoughts on where we're going with the federal-state conflicts? I mean, I think it seems to me that we're really set up for, and I know we didn't give you this question beforehand, so apologies if, you know, you can't answer it. But, you know, the the feds have their own biological opinion that they're trying to pump more water from the Delta. The state now has its own process where they say we're going to try and we're going to come up with our own number. Uh, but, you know, the Delta channels are the Delta channels. One of the big, uh, you know, factors in regulation is old middle river flows. And if the feds say that old middle river can, you know, flow at, you know, negative 5,000 CFS, meaning it's flowing backwards, by the way, not out to the ocean, but to the pump. And the state says, oh, you can only do that at 2,000, negative 2,000 CFS. I mean, how, how are we going to solve this? Do you have any insight or any um, thoughts on the federal state process? And my, uh, my apologies for uh, throwing you a question you weren't prepared for, perhaps. 
Um, I think we're going to solve it with a presidential election the next November. I suspect everything will be slowly delayed, sued, postponed. With any luck, we'll have a wet winter so that the fights aren't quite as acute next year. Although the models are looking for a hot, dry winter. They're looking at a hot, dry winter. Um, with any luck, we'll have a wet year. Things will be sued and slowly released. And um, then there'll be a presidential election in November, and we'll know whether... Um, we'll know whether the federal direction will keep going the way it's going now. Well, I, mean, I, I don't see it solved anyway before then. But we're kind of in limbo um, as this fight goes on. And on That's and my on. expectation that it will stay yeah. in limbo. For so, do you year. see? Do you see yeah. any anybody coming forth with a proposal that's reasonable, or is it just really reasonable still... for what? Well. For instance, for the governor's uh, resilience portfolio, is there is there something being developed or pushed by some entity or person that does seem reasonable, or is is it um, or is this blueprint, the San Joaquin Valley blueprint, the only thing that we've really seen of substance? Oh no 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 no! Everyone is hustling on this. I, I, every I, I do not envy the team that is going to sort of that and. Um, come to some conclusion. If they're listening now, um, you're... <laughs> they, so, let, so let's say facing you were... Facing a massive of, material. Yeah. So, so let's say you were of, um, of the demeanor to go with option number one that you described earlier, you know, planning. Where do we want to go mm-hmm. and then work backwards from that? You know, how much... How, how healthy of a river do you, system do you want? How many irrigated acres? How many people? And then create... A plan according to that. Is is anybody really doing that, or is everybody pretty much no. doing the low hanging fruit? And there's really nothing that we could support if you were of that opinion. Um, I will be surprised if the resilience portfolio reaches into anything that has much controversy to it. I um, think that the state would have to. Start, start backstopping the locals. The way we saw Sigma work was that the state said, locals, you have to achieve water pumping sustainability. Um, and if you don't, we'll be the backstop and we'll decide. And I think that model where the state offers the locals a chance to do something first, but then provides a, a solid backstop with solid enforcement, um, I think that's what they would have to do to mm-hmm. advance any sort of aggressive water um, portfolio. And I don't know if the willingness is there. I will find out in October. It is as, as unclear to me as it is to anyone. Yeah. Well, it's but, tough because it's a universal problem through the state. You know, it's a big picture thing, and it's tough to just say, hey, all of you local, and it, although, although water is very local, but <clears throat> in our state, we're plumbed such that it is not local. It comes from elsewhere. It comes right. From north to south, very or from, yeah, or from you know from the east to the west. So, um, so it's kind of tough just to say everybody do your local thing and uh, not have, I guess, the political will to do something from the big picture side. So what what about these voluntary agreements that are that discussions <laughs> are underway? 
I mean, what what do you think about those OTPR? Do you think that's possible? <laughs> I think you know what I think about those. Um, I think they're a terrible practice. I am I am very dismayed. The background for the voluntary settlement agreement is that last fall the state board finally set um, what it, what amounts to minimum in-stream flow standards on the San Joaquin River and many of its tributaries, the Merced. Um, Malmi and maybe Macomb, I'm not sure. They these minimum in-stream standards are that instead of having 11% of the water that those rivers traditionally got or got before they were um, diverted for agriculture, the rivers would sometimes get between 30 and 50%. Well, the rivers had to have a minimum of between 30 and 50%. Um, right. So this is this is still rivers that are half what they used to be, and the water district um, challenged that or threatened to challenge it in court. And as an alternative, the Newsom excuse me, the Brown administration started something called the Voluntary Settlement Agreement, where they said they approached the districts, so or the districts approached them. Again, I'm not personally involved, and said, "What can we do faster together?" And the um, districts are offering things like, "Well, we'll immediately do some habitat restoration. We'll." return some flows at some times that are convenient for us, but these should really be time to help the fish. And we can get you better results than you could have gotten with your 30 to 50% in-stream flows. Um, so that's the proposal. That's what's on the table. I think, I think they're terrible, frankly. I think the primary problem I have with them is that what the state was doing when it set the 30 to 50% in-stream flow standards was they were saying, we are going to work from the public trust, which is the water rights doctrine that says that the state has the first and primordial right over the river, and that it has an obligation to keep that river um, as a thriving, living, um, a thriving, living river. That overrides any other water rights, and this doctrine dates back to Roman times, but it, it was um, strongly enforced in California with the Mono Lake decision. And I think negotiating with the water districts says that, no, the important thing is that the water districts have their own water rights, and maybe they'll give us back some water. The important thing, and so what it does is instead of us saying, no, we're the state, we have a fundamental right to keep rivers alive, and that is the first right and the first use for water in our state. And agriculture comes second to that if the river is doing okay. Instead of saying that, they're saying, well, districts, you really have the right and we're going to trade you to give them back to us. And I think that is an abandonment of state power and authority. And also, it is not doing their duty. Um, so I think that they're inherently a bad concept. I'm dismayed that we are continuing with them. Um, because, in, because in your view, it erroneously gives the water district ownership of the water when it's really the state. Thank you for that summary. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure I got that straight. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard that particular point of view. Uh, the environs make that point, <laughs> as you would expect. Um, yeah. So there's that problem with it. And I also, I just don't expect the water districts to give up much water. The water districts were built and conceived of in a time when they were there to support expansion and economic growth. And that's sure. what they do. 
Yeah. That's what yeah. they're for. Yeah, I don't you, you would expect them... that that's what they want to do. That's, that is, that's their mantra. That's... Yeah, I, I don't see them being willing to, to retreat and, yeah. to, um, and to adhere to limits and to back off full-time expansion. That's just not what they're designed for. Yeah, boy. So changing times require change everywhere, um, including in the mission statements of you know <laughs> the, the companies and the and even the entities that supply our water. Very, very. Uh, or we uh, need new kinds of entities to supply our water. Yeah, or possibly new entities. So, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, um, we have about two minutes left on the show, and I'd like to offer. Um, Chris Davey, is there anything you'd like to add? Because you've been awfully quiet over there, Mr. Chris. Well, I think it's been an exciting uh, conversation just to listen to, right? I'm intrigued about about whether it's the systemic complacency in the, on the behalf of the state government to do some of these things, right? I mean, for me, it's like a diet, right? Every time I want to go on a diet and eat, eat healthy, then some you know, holiday or, or, or family event comes along or a Friday or a Tuesday or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> sort of the same sort of thing. Yeah, so maybe we've been binging and we need to go on a diet. <laughs> yep. yep. Something like that. Well, uh, Chris Austin, thank you for co-hosting with me and OTPR. We really, really appreciate you coming on the air with us. Um, you've got an incredible blog with a lot of information that, hey, whether you agree with it or not, it is absolutely uh, essential for our democracy to have these conversations on how to move forward. Is there anything you'd like to add before uh, we close the show? I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we, we had a blast. And go uh, read on the public record. On the public record. Maven's Notebook and on the public record. If you want to know about water, folks, the, these are the two ladies, their websites and blogs to go to. Thank you all for a wonderful show. I'll hand it back to you, Chris. All right, great to have you guys on. OTCR, Chris Austin, Amy Bistona, thank you very much. For those of you uh, listening, controversial, certainly not one-sided issue.